Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest this week is Andrew Alexander King, who is an African-American explorer, alpinist, climber, and surfer who was born in Detroit, Michigan, and has gone on to see a whole lot of the rest of the world. Andrew has climbed over 50 different mountains around the world, from Kilimanjaro to the highest mountain in the Atlantic, Indian, and the Pacific Ocean, and he is currently training and aiming to become the first African American to climb the highest mountain and volcano on each continent. So, needless to say, Andrew's story is incredibly interesting, and he is currently at work on the Between Worlds Project, which is every bit as interesting and important. This conversation was just a total pleasure, and so I am confident that you are going to enjoy it too. And you can also go to thebetweenworldsproject.com to connect with Andrew and to get even more details on what he is up to. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Andrew Alexander King. Here we go. Well, Andrew. How are you today? And where are you today? I'm good, Jonathan. I am doing great. It's a beautiful day. I'm alive and I actually feel great, meditated. So I'm actually in Caboreta, Caboreta, Dominican Republic today and enjoying the time here. So yeah, how are you doing is my question. <laughs> I'm doing great. I did just maybe make you do like break one of your rules where you're like, <laughs> it's just, we were just talking about how you maybe kind of only really let a select few people or entities kind of know where you are in the world at any given time. So I just sure. I just kind of outed you a little bit on on that. You front, did. But uh, you did. But I appreciate you. So it's all good. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've got a lot of interesting things to talk about here. And I, I think maybe as one way to get into it, maybe explain why you're in the Dominican Republic right now. Yeah. And first thing, I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you for just reaching out and even asking me to come on and speak. Uh, so I'm here in the Dominican Republic, part of the Screen Loads Project, a project I started five years ago. And I'm volunteering with the Charlie's Foundation. It's a nonprofit here located in Cabareta. Dominican Republic, where it helps um, kids around um, the community get schooling, funding, education, uh, and have a place to really thrive and not be marginalized within a community that's dealing with social xenophobia and other economic issues as well. Um, also, came here to climb the highest mountain in the Caribbean um, with my one of my best friends, and also surf as well. So I'm training for Denali training to climb the highest mountain on each continent, as well as the highest volcano to speak out against sexism, racism, inequality, and social economic barriers and climate change. So here training right now. And that is basically why I'm here. Now, very soon, we are going to take it all the way back, you know, to your background. But why don't we stay on the Between Worlds project for a minute since you've, you've mentioned it. And I'm interested if your initial vision for this project, is it still consistent? And it, like today, you're kind of exactly where you were when you first started like drumming up the idea for it. How has that sort of either evolved or actually stayed pretty consistent? That's a great question. That's a really beautiful question, actually. So it started five years ago, six years ago now. Wow. Six years ago now. Time flies, they say. Yeah, time does fly. And so started still self self funded right now uh and i started it basically as an individual that understood i just put it in simple terms all of us are randomly born as lottery tickets and we're we're not asked what color race or gender that we want to be or where we want to be pushed out into this world and when you come into this world you are coming you come in with a value that society puts upon you it's like a lottery ticket your denomination is x so being an, being an African-American male, being born into Detroit to a single mother, my denomination was already predetermined by society when I came out to this world consciously. And so as I navigated my space between where I am as a black man in America, I started to find myself of healing within nature. So I started to 
by the time I got to Hawaii to live there after being adopted by my grandparents, I learned how to surf, be in nature, climb. I wanted to push myself a little bit further and start climbing around the world to different parts. And I got to Taiwan a while on my journey to climb the, the it's called the Trinity Climbs in the Southeast, the South Pacific. So it's Mount Fuji, Mount Jade in Taiwan, and then Mount Kinabalu in Malaysia. And I'm going along my climbs. I've done some other climbs already before that. And I get to this mining town on my way to Mount Jade and I'm sitting in this coffee in like our little tea or coffee shop and this woman comes up to me gives me my hot chocolate and she goes where are you from and I say I'm from you know America she goes oh I love America I always wanted to go and I was like oh you should come and as soon as I say that I feel ignorant about it and I feel ignorant about it because I look around the shop and it would take her so much to afford just a ticket to get there let alone experience America the way that I do. Even though it's marginalized, she would still have to fight to even have the resources and the monetary value to experience America at that scale. So at that point, it hit me like we're all navigating between these worlds that's under this glass ceiling and breaking through that. And the closer we get to it, how do we break through that? So has it evolved since understanding that we're all navigating that space consciously, subconsciously in our own right? Yes, it has. Over time, from being from Africa to you know Central America climbs to South America climbs and working with different nonprofits along the way, I, I decided from that moment in Taiwan that I would never go to a country, absorb their resources, and not give back to them. It, it hit me right then and there that I would never just walk into a place and say, like, I climbed a mountain, here's a selfie, I'm going to back off, and then I'm going to come here and not really give back to those communities that are struggling along the way. I took it a step further when I went to Morocco to climb Mount Tikabaku in Northern Africa, the highest mountain in Northern Africa. And I learned what it meant during the height of the Me Too movement, working at a um, women's refuge in Marrakesh, that I would speak out not just for just work with nonprofits, but I would speak out for issues such as sexism, which was happening a lot during, still is happening a lot, racism, which still happens pretty frequently, and climate change and social economic barriers. So it's evolved to really be this whole encompass of pushing what humanity should be striving for, in my opinion, versus being just giving back and also pushing those me as someone to really give as much of a voice to those nonprofits, such as the Charlie Foundation here in the Dominican Republic, to have a platform and have someone that's advocating for them in a developed nation versus them just seeing someone pass by, go surfing every day and not get back to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. How long were you in Detroit for? Oh, I was in Detroit until I was 11. And uh, it was it was a pretty, pretty interesting time. I, I grew up there until, um, yeah, until about fifth grade. It's about fifth, yeah, yeah. What were you into as a kid? A lot of Duke Ellington, a lot of jazz yes. music. A lot of jazz music. So I like to go to school and study a lot. I, I I grew up around a village of smart, strong women and males. I didn't have a dad uh, growing up. I never met my father. And I've always been okay with that because I've had the love of my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandfather, my brother, my mom, and my uncles. And so I just was surrounded by these loving people that accepted me for who I was coming out into the world. And... Uh, I was the one to study. No one in my family tree ever went to college. Uh, and I wanted to go to college right off the bat as a kid. I would come home every night and just like study mathematics, study science. I had like a little, I had like a little science laboratory, like a telescope. I'd always ask for for Christmas. So Duke Ellington, science and um, technology was something I was huge into. And if you talk to my mom, if my mom was on the show, she would tell you this story how I took apart electronic things in the house and I would put them back together, but they would not work. So. Perfect. <laughs> we might need to get your mom on a, a subsequent podcast to work through some of those stories. Oh, man. She would just roll through so many of those stories and be like, yeah, she would be like, remember that time you took like my radar detector apart? And I was like, well, it teaches you not to speed on the highway. So. <laughs> Every time I talk to somebody who, you know, talks about like as a kid, all I wanted to do was study. I'm just like, I, I was not that kid. I was like the dumber kid, you know, who, and, uh, and, and thankfully like the light bulb turned on for me later. And I'm really grateful that that happened 
so much wasted time, you know? And so it's, it's kind of always inspiring to hear like, yeah, I was kind of on it early. And like, I realized the world was a big, interesting place. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> yeah, you know. Let me tell you, I was not on it. I was just a curious kid. I think it just still transpired today. I think when I tell people about meditating in the morning, I meditate internally and I always reflect on the childhood curiosity as I navigate through that. And it's just always been like that. So my mom would tell you about me taking apart stuff. And then my grandfather would tell you about like me just listening to jazz music a lot. And like people like around me and in our neighborhood was very violent. It was like my, I lost my best friend, um, Shanika King to gun violence at the age of, in fifth grade to a drive by shooting. And, it was very common. And so you, again, we had metal detectors in elementary school. And if, and I always tell people the first mountain ever climbed, isn't a mountain in like some foreign country. It's the mountain of getting out of Detroit, like walking from seven, seven, zero Asbury park to school every day was the highest mountain ever. Cause you didn't know if you were going to come back alive or not. And so mentally it was just building that in my head, like going through metal detectors. So escapism to me was learning as much as I could. So if the opportunity ever presented itself, I would at least know how to navigate through that. So, so you had that sense early on. I mean, one, you just said you had the example of some strong, smart, curious people around you, but you also were kind of like, I, I see, I see a, a path out of here. Yeah, I did because it was either three different ways you're going to get out of Detroit. Either you're going to go to jail up north or you're going to leave in a body bag or you're going to go to college or you are you willing to move out of there um and i wanted to leave alive and not incarcerated and so i knew i was either going to go to tech college or any college for that matter and i didn't want my mom to or my family to really strive to pay for that so i did as much as i could to do that and it was really hard because you see a lot of your peers that are already in that system and it's going to, that's just, you're going to look up to that already. But lucky for me, I had, again, those very strong mentors that really made sure that I didn't, I can keep those blinders on and stay focused. And um, my grandparents adopted me. And when they did, they just became the catalyst of discipline to make sure I stayed focused. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is like, I, you know, I, I'm in this world of kind of mountain sports and, and talking to a lot of people doing a lot of really impressive things, you know, in, in mountains and on the water and, and, and the, the like. I didn't grow up in the mountains. I grew up in Chicago. And so it's, oh, here's somebody else who like didn't just kind of grow up in this scene. You know, I, I talk all the time and I think all the time of like, man, I want to just keep sort of opening up this world. You know, I was just on a one of our podcasts saying recently, like the mountains are like straight up therapy for me. Like they really are. Like that's not some exaggeration. And I think like, what do we do in terms of making this world a bit more accessible? Um, how do we show it? How do we present it to kids growing up in Detroit, in Chicago, should we care? I mean, maybe it's the wrong sort of thing to be thinking about here, but I imagine you've spent some time thinking about this. Let's dive into that, you know, full speed ahead, because the first thing is I'll say, we should think about that collectively as humans. And I say, how do we make it more accessible is become more accountable to what we don't make accessible for people and individuals. And what I can say about that is this, I'm sitting with the Charlie's Foundation. I'll give you a real life example that just happened to me a few days ago. And I'm sitting down with them and we're talking about the xenophobia of how individuals here do not want to be a certain color because they're at odds with Haiti, who is their next door neighbor. And if you understand the, the aftermath of this continent of what is the, of the island of what is the Medicum in Haiti, it's actually very turbulent. And so... Certain children don't want to be associated with certain aspects of their of their neighbors because of what they look like. And so that creates a friction. And it goes back to what I said, where everything is random. Your lottery ticket doesn't say what you're going to be. So 
why are we creating more barriers for individuals that just want to heal and navigate through a space with less friction? And should we be, should we care about that? Yes, we should, because the climbs to be the first African American to climb the highest mountain and volcano each continent, I'll be very honest with everyone here. That's a vehicle. If I get to the top of Everest and I had not connected with anyone along the way, then I didn't climb any higher than the sea level of Los Angeles. I just could have just stayed home there. And I mean that because then I did it for myself. And so it's a vehicle for us to talk about these issues along the way. The 15th mountain out of the 14 is equality, where we can all stand on top of that collectively around the table and see how much farther can we go together? Which brands need to have more representation? You can't be something if you don't see it. So in order for you to see it, you need accessibility mentally, cognitively, and like, you know, visually for people to really understand that. In my opinion, the way we get there is having these very hard discussions, you know, for where people can really sit back and think about what they could do better and be more progressive. And I, I made the decision, you know, with the Between Worlds project and doing these climbs where I said, I'm tired of getting up and going to my work every day, creating technology, and there's people struggling. I don't want to go on a vacation and sit in a resort and look around and walk by the grocery store and see a kid that just wants $5. And I make 30 times that easily in a day. And I can just give that back. And that $5 to that kid can make him more accessible or he or she more accessible to enjoy nature and find healing the way that I did. So to answer your question, it starts with having these really deep conversations of like, how can I give more than I already have? How can I be more to a place than I already take away? And then how can I keep that sustainable to build a bridge for the future of tomorrow? And that just comes with being accountable to your actions and brands that are outdoor brands really should look into that and see, are we marginalizing our our audience, are we just representing, or is our roster of amazing athletes just one way? And I think, <clears throat> I just honestly said this recently, I said to someone, I said, if you were to take a minority athlete and put them side by side with a privileged athlete, and you took them and said to the minority athlete, How, what did it take for you to get here? They will tell you some traumatic stories more than likely. And the privilege actually privileged athlete might be like, I can't relate because you've never really had to take that path. And I will give you a sense of that. The track gun you hear in when they tell you to go as being a, a former D1 athlete, I've already knew the sound of a gun was like before I even got out of fifth grade. And it always meant run. So when I heard it in college, I already knew that just meant go as hard as you can. Versus if someone went to a prep school, you know, heard the gun for the first time on the track and field in junior high or high school, that gun meant so that noise went way more to me than it did have a privileged athlete at that time. It wasn't just a gun that said run. It was like run for your life. So that is what I mean when brands look outdoors and look at their roster said diversifying your portfolio, or your roster of athletes doesn't mean you're giving up anything. It means you're giving more to people that just want to see themselves someplace that they want to be and being accountable to it. We're going to get back to brands in a second, but I want to come back to your own kind of the chronology of your story. Who introduced you to Duke Ellington? Or was it, was it, was it somebody introduced you to jazz and then you came across the Duke on your own? Oh, you want to hear something crazy? So this is a great, that's a great question. I love these questions. Uh, I wish people could see the smile on our faces right now. <laughs> so, um, so my grandfather is a huge jazz fan. Like my grandfather, who is a big inspiration to me, introduced me to jazz. He would just, we would listen to jazz more than anything else on car rides. Kenny G, you name it. Uh, I, he was huge and still is huge into jazz. So in fourth grade, I had to do a book report on someone that was iconic, and I picked Duke Ellington, who was who sadly died from lung cancer, but was one of the first African-American musicians to go to the White House and play. 
And so I just fell in love with Duke Ellington and it, it was something my grandparents introduced me to, which was just, you know, just amazing jazz and sound. And yeah, so yeah, those my grandparents. <laughs> and you're still in on Duke today? Are you still listening to a lot of jazz today or have you switched up? Uh, I listen to jazz a lot. I switched up. It's eclectic. I listen to eclectic such a stuff, but I'm more of like, you know, chill, methodical. If, um, but my playlist for climbing does not pertain to jazz unless I'm at my tent. But yeah, but like at night last night and tonight when I like, you know, re- write my reflection journal and such, like right here, it's basically um, jazz or that kind of chill music. But jazz is something that's huge, will always be in my life for sure. I, did I play Did I play any instruments? No, that was my brothers and sisters. You know, they were amazing at that. Um, but I stayed with just, you know, it's just amazing to listen to good jazz. Good jazz, you can't. A good saxophone. Yeah, it can't be that. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I <clears throat> this is a total tangent. I'll, apologies to everybody listening, but you know, for a while, I kind of have just been listening to music on like my laptop or you know, little kind of crappy earbuds or something. And I actually was like, okay, you know, COVID stuff is lasting a long time. Whatever. Like, I'm gonna actually get some decent audio equipment. And it has just trans I, and and I have been listening, admittedly, to a lot of podcasts over the last couple of years. Like it's that's almost kind of replaced music for me. But like I've got this new audio equipment, and I am just it is like I am now for the first time in several years, like stopping and just sitting still, and I'm like hearing music again, you know. And I mm-hmm. and I was like, my God, I've like forgot like forgot what music sounds like. And so now tonight I'm going to, I'm going to fire up Duke and uh, I'm excited. I'm real excited right now. So appreciate the, I appreciate the, the uh, inspiration here. I, it's, it's good. You sh- I mean, I'm glad I can inspire you, but I've seen John Mayer live, Leon Bridges. And when you know, when you know a good blues guitarist too, you're just like, that is really good guitar. But having a record, I have a record player. Like my grandparents had record players and I still have a record player to this day. So getting a record and taking it out of its sleeve and putting it on the record player and playing it from side to side is something like, why would you do that? I have like an iPhone or like my Android and I'm like my pixel. I can just play through. I'm like, because it's forcing you to listen to every ounce of that record. And we don't do that. We listen to like singles now. Yeah. So you're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this yeah. is the next level of my progression here. So <laughs> it's, it's all a journey, you know? Yeah. All right. Detroit to Hawaii. It was, it was actually Detroit to Georgia to Europe and then Hawaii in between and then Hawaii. So my grandparents were in the military and they still are associated with it. So I got to see a lot. To be honest with you, I actually got to go to Germany before I even went to elementary school and it was really cool. So I got to learn, see Germany at a very young age and be really open to the world. I, in my opinion, if I had to go back in time and someone gave me like a, a snapshot of life, I think that is what started to crack open that door of like thinking deeply because being over in Germany with my grandparents and, you know, going around and to the different markets was, and hearing people speak different languages and different cultures was something I, I subconsciously was digesting. But yeah, when we, we moved around in Hawaii is when people ask me what's home, I say Hawaii. And the reason why I say it's because not because it's cool. It's because it was the first place in my entire existence where I felt no prejudice and I felt normal. And the reason for that was because I saw people of color surfing and then I saw people that were white being like, I can't, I can't surf here unless I'm actually told by the locals. And I was like, Oh, this is interesting. What? I was like, wait, this is reversed. And I didn't see any racism there. And so it gave me a place to really connect internally with myself and be healed and where I can climb mountains, surf and be in nature. And, um, a lot of people always ask, like, is that your home? And I call, yeah, that's honestly what I identify with as home because I learned how to meditate, learn how to climb mountains, I learned how to run through like nature, learn how to appreciate life. And it teaches you resources. Like people of Hawaii, I'm going to be honest, 
they are strong and communicative people. And every year in this in the wintertime, everyone in the surf community sawns down on them, makes a privilege there, and absorbs the resources. And the people of Hawaii are left very few things after that. And um, I just learned a lot from that culture. So, yeah. You think there's any way, if you'd never ended up in Hawaii, you think you're surfing and climbing mountains today? I'm going to be very honest with you. No. Yeah. Seeing World's Project probably wouldn't have like planted its first seed. 100%. I, I, that's why I think I owe a lot to that community as, as much as like not just being African-American because people there were just so open and nice and respectful. And I understood what resource allocation was and um, sticking up for your culture and yourself. I'm not saying I didn't understand that growing up in Detroit. I do understand that fully now. And I speak up for the African-American culture as a whole, but seeing how the indigenous people of Hawaii dealt with so much persecution and you know, being manipulated and taken for granted um, by mandolinders and outside cultures, they still love their culture and still work and hold it dear to their heart. And I don't think I would have actually um, felt that same way if I didn't grow up there. I think honestly, I probably would have, if, to be honest with you, I probably would have got it later on in life, way later. And it wouldn't have been as unique and true to the soul as it is now. And so this is the interesting part, right? When we're talking about, you know, a few minutes back, we're talking about representation and why it's so important. You know, it's like, look, there's a lot of kids in Detroit or Chicago or Iowa or wherever, they're not going to end up moving to Hawaii, but, but they might see you standing on some mountains or surfing their life story isn't going to go, well, I bounced around and ended up in Hawaii, somewhat of another lottery factor, right? It's like, well, maybe you can sort of like make it so that they don't have to actually end up somehow in Hawaii. It's the most interesting thing. Like, you know, I, we spend a lot of time, I think correctly, worrying about some of the modern technologies, right? And I, I think some of those things are, it's kind of evident. I don't think I need to rehash those. But the beauty of modern technology is the accessibility of like the world can just expand in a way that it's never been able to expand to so many people, right? I mean, now we got to go have, you know, we got to shine lights and we need to put people in positions to do this stuff. But you know, and I, I probably do spend a fair amount of my time like bashing certain social media platforms and the rest. But here's the upside is that if it's like, if there are kids and like, I was kind of one of those kids. I tell people all the time, I don't, I didn't know skiing was like a thing that people did. You know, I didn't grow up in that world. And I think if we can just con keep connecting and showing, look at look at what Andrew's doing. Like he's surfing these waves and he's climbing these mountains. And I guess that's a thing I could potentially do. Pretty pretty sweet. And and I, I guess I say that only if you know if representation sort of to some people might just kind of seem like a buzzword or like what are we doing here? I think like even in this thirty minutes, I think you've done a real nice job of like adeptly showing like this is why it can't just become some buzzword or like the latest thing right like it's not empty it's not empty right right and i think that's a good way of asking that because i hope any kid or young adult or any adult sees that and i'll just say this the biggest world is within your mind the biggest step is within your heart and I think what I mean by that is what you imagine, like if you go into your mind and I meditate every morning, that is the biggest world. It, your mind is as vast and as big as the universe and is as small as your closet, if you want it to be. And for me, you know, Detroit 770 Asbury Park was very small, but I always would look out. I would say this, my brother um, got to live with my grandparents before I did. And I would always look out as the sun was setting. And I would always think, is my brother seeing the same sunset I'm seeing? He wasn't because he was somewhere else in the world. And But I would always think how far it out there. And what I mean by that is don't limit yourself to what society says or your current circumstances are. 
push yourself to be beyond that. And if you ask people like, how does a black young African-American teach himself to swim, surf, surf big waves, climb huge mountains and, you know, free dive to depths way below his, you know, what he's used to, you just go and do it. Anything before something ever existed in this world, people had to make it into fruition. And so your dreams and your, what you want to be is the same way. So for me, I, I was, again, no one in my family went to college. And I remember telling my mom and grandparents, I'm going to go to college. And your Lord behold, then I get him a master's degree. And then everyone else in my family gets to seize that path and they go to college. And now my mom has, my mom now has out of, out of the four of us, all four of us have are going or are graduated from college and she's a single mom and everyone's like what what did you and like so anyone hearing this i hope you really see and understand that yes society is going to throw bricks and they're going to throw words and they're going to throw barriers and they're going to throw fires all in front of you to see if you're mentally can handle accepting the true version of yourself because that, that's usually the hardest thing, I think, for a lot of people when they're navigating that space is when you become confident in yourself, how do you balance the humbleness and confidence to stay true to your core values? And back to your original question, if I didn't live in Hawaii, I wouldn't have understood the true nature of respecting Mother Nature. If you ever surf with me, like my best friend here saw me surf, I always touch the water and I put my head down. And I say a thank you to Mother Nature, and I say, please bring home everyone in the ocean safely. You know, I'm leaving everything on land to be in your arms. When I step on the base of a mountain, I say to Mother Nature, take me into your arms. And when I stand on top of you, please let me be with you. And I leave a piece of my mind at the top of every mountain I stand at meditating. I meditate at the top of every mountain I stand. So, and people are like, why do you do that? And I say, before I take off for a mountain, like for Denali, I've been meditating, meditating about Denali for months. And I'm just connecting my mind to my, my physical body. I wouldn't have figured that out if I didn't live in a place or experience traveling to a place from Detroit to Hawaii, from Georgia to Europe along the way. And so anyone that's hearing this, Hawaii was a place for me, but there's a place for you out there that connects with you and gives you those core values. And I believe you can find it as you take that heartbeat step forward. But yeah, I, I think the representation isn't one dimensional. And I think a lot of brands or people think like, oh, you know, that's, it's not a buzzword. It's the reality of the reality. You can't be something if you can't see it. And I looked at back at my people that I, I didn't have a lot of peers. I still don't recognize a lot of people in the climate community that are African-American. You have to, you have to search pretty far and wide on Google to find that. If someone, I would say this, if someone wants to DM me and tell me who the first African-American was that climbed Denali, and you can figure that out in like two seconds, I would be like, okay, I will, I will Venmo you a hundred dollars. <laughs> that, that is a key because he, that man was still not even, oh, I just gave you, I gave you a clue there. He was still not given the representation in Alpine books. And then the, 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 the woman that just climbed, the first African-American woman who climbed Everest did it in 06. Everest has been climbed since Sir Hillary has done it. And you're telling me it took almost like, you know, almost 56 years for like someone to actually climb Everest as an African-American. That is how representation is vital to the diversity of a sport. And I think, I think that is where a lot of people and brands, like it's not a buzzword. It's if something is always the same, it's not always growing to be for the, for the next generation. So I look forward to seeing more surfers of color, not just a privilege or just one color, like going on the world title. There's never been an African-American that's won the pipeline masters or the big wave surfing. Why is that? because it takes money for them to get sponsored, to actually create boards and go on these surfing trips to become good, to actually take on these massive waves and be extreme athletes. So if you're not investing in them because there's no representation of them, then they cannot actually have a chance to hold up and break through that glass ceiling. 
So you must start with actually giving someone a representation of what they could be. Do I think someone's going to come behind me and break all these records of climbing these mountains? Yes. And if you're listening to this right now, I hope you do. Because that's the whole point of this. Let's talk about college. Where'd you go? Why'd you choose that place? What did you study? We'll, we'll, just, we'll give you just three to start with there. <laughs> three is great. I like threes. Triangles are great for me. I like triangles. So I went to University of Maine. Um, and this is a crazy story, which I'll tell people. It, it's interesting. I got into Morehouse College, which is the college where Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, pretty prevalent African-American leaders, you know, got it's the Harvard of African-American colleges, HBCUs, historical black colleges, and universities. And um, I got into there. And I got into University of Maine on a track and field scholarship. When my grandparents adopted me, I made it very clear that they weren't going to pay for college. And so when I got a track and field scholarship to be a D1 athlete at the University of Maine, I had to make the decision between going to University of Maine or going to Morehouse College. My grandfather and grandparents were so excited that I got into Morehouse that they were wearing the shirts already, jumping around in the kitchen, being like, you got into Morehouse. And I was like, I'm going to UMaine. They go, wait, you're going to the whitest college in America? And I was like, yeah. They was like, do you even know where Maine is? I'm like, it's in New England, like the New England Patriots, which I like Tom Brady. So it's up to that. And so I really said this. I really did say this. And so I was a fan of Tom Brady when he beat the St. Louis Rams and Kurt Warner, you know, so already went to college. And so I went to University of Maine on a sprinting car, a track and field scholarship, I studied mass communication, minored in political science and women's studies. And um, the reason why I did that is because, A, communication is key. And everyone thought I was going to be a politician because I didn't. I did ROTC for years, for all four years of high school. But I was like, I'm not going into the military. Um, I respect the service. I respect my grandparents. I respect my brother, who's my brother's head are in it. And I respect our armed service members. I really do. They've given us the freedom to have these liberties 100%. And I think they, sh- I, I wish we did more for them when they came home. Um, but I knew in my heart that after doing, having that discipline for so long, that it made sense for me to push out and be more creative in a different spectrum of life. I then moved on to get my master's from LaSalle College in New England um, in Boston area in integrated marketing. And I went on to work for some pretty interesting companies. I went on to work for the New England Patriots, and then I went on to work for Lego, and then I went on to work for uh, Live Nation as well, and did working in technology and building up technology infrastructures for different companies and funding my own climbs along the way. So I never took any money from, you know, corporations just funded every ounce of the Between Worlds project, working multiple jobs to afford gear and pay for like expeditions. So you worked for the Patriots. I did. I did. So yeah, it was great. Were were you the one encouraging Belichick to like cheat all the time? (laughs) I'm getting into that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Give me one Patriots story though. Was that an was that a more interesting experience than we'd guess, or I don't know, less interesting than we'd guess? No, it was more. I think honestly, it was the beginning of my corporate career. So for me, it's where the professionalism came into it. It's where being in the corporate space for over 10 years now, I think a lot of, especially seeing this now where a lot of athletes, like I understood athletes rights. I understand media rights. I understand sponsorship deals, contracts, how that all goes. I've seen what that looks like. Um, I came from more of a technical standard background, but understanding if it wasn't for my mentors at the Patriots, I would, my career wouldn't have flourished to where it is now to have the corporate confidence to, help navigate, you know, technological infrastructures and to stand up, you know, uh, my project management skills, which they are now, because that elevated me. And I, I would say this to anyone that's listening is that the Andrew Alexander King you hear or will see, see before you is made up of a kaleidoscope of individuals from multiple backgrounds, from white, black, Hispanic, Asian, African-American, and people along the way that, gave me the ability to be here. Um, 
I am paying tribute to them by climbing, but the people at the Patriots really taught me a lot about professionalism and doing what you say you're going to do and sticking doing that well. As far as the cheating goes, I don't know if I'm going to talk about that. So can't help you there. (laughs) Fair. 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 I still talk to my mentors there and they, they gave me a chance. And from that point forward, a lot of other people at Lego as well. And um, I would not be the individual that could hold his own if they didn't do that. So So where in the timeline then do you start having this idea for Between Worlds? You're, I'm trying to, I'm bad at math apparently, but I'm trying to think you're, let's say, so you're out of school, you're, you're working for the Patriots. You're not yet thinking of this. That doesn't come for another four years. The Between Worlds project doesn't come for another four or five years after that. Yeah, it's when I'm 20, yeah, 26. So I'm 26. So if you get, if anyone does the math, you'll know how old I am after this. So, so just putting some, age, Jonathan put me on the spot, so I got to tell my age now. So it's fine now. <laughs> um, but so yeah, I'm 26 and I'm working, I'm working for Lego at the time. And I started climbing I started climbing in my mid twenties. No, like no early twenties. So like 22, 23. So I started climbing, but you're looking probably about, yeah, three or four years into my climbing. I'm now realizing I just don't want to climb the climb, you know, like I'm realizing what Hawaii has taught me about surfing and climbing and how I'm now affording the able to ability to have that freedom to go anywhere I want to climb. And I'm like, what am I, what am I getting out of this? Because I'm going like, let's put it this way. I, I've climbed the highest mountain in the Pacific ocean, the Atlantic ocean, the Indian ocean. The only ocean I haven't climbed that's the highest one is the Arctic ocean. And I think I'll be the first African-American to do that when I climb, you know, Mount Vincent in Antarctica. But along the way, I was just like, what am I climbing for here? Am I just climbing to take selfies and like, you know, do this to like absorb cultures? And am I, am I learning anything? And the answer is no, I was learning nothing. I was honestly just going there on a vacation, climbing, meditating at the top. And I, I was, I, there's, there's things I need to experience. So the Between Worlds Project at 26 in Taiwan on the, like the Trinity climbs really kicked it in. Like that woman in that time in my life was such a pivotal moment because I'm now understanding like, okay, you've been in the corporate world for a search, like a while now you're on your own in the world. You're making your own money. You're, you know, you've been doing the tech thing. You work for these companies. And like I said earlier, I didn't want to just come back after vacation and sit at my seat and be like, that was that I didn't do anything for anybody. You know, here's some cool photos I can brag about at a party. It, It actually, made me feel less of a human being doing that. And so that's when the Between Worlds project took off. Now, you did tell me, though, just before we officially started recording, I mean, like, you were just sport climbing, weren't you? Like, you're still, is it that you're sport climbing now that's very much kind of like training yeah. for you as opposed to being sort of, I mean, a lot for a lot of people, sport climbing is kind of the end. It's not a training for anything. They're, that's what they do. Yeah, the most people do for sport. I'm more of a mountaineering side. Like, honestly, volcanoes are my thing. And the reason why volcanoes are my thing, because I started with volcanoes. I would climb to the top of the volcano, meditate, and then come down and surf because volcanoes are on islands. So I love doing that. So it was a way to connect between the worlds. I was like, I go up to the top, meditate, cool, at Mauna Kea. If I get down in time, I go surf. And so you're connecting those forces of the ocean and land together. And then you're also changing from, cause you're never the same person as when you start at the base to when you get to the top. So, so for me, sport climbing is a way of training. Honestly, a lot of people now are like, Andrew, why are you just like, are you just peak? Like, I didn't know what this term was until recent. Like you're a peak bagger or bagger. And I was just like, I was like, what is that? And they go like, you just climb peaks. I was like, okay, I definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> Right. That's back to the, just cross it off the checklist, get back to your work and be like, I guess that's it. Exactly. That's, yeah. You, you do not seem like a peak bagger to me. Yeah. When people are like, you're I'm like, I'm not, I don't, yeah, I don't want that. Uh, but yeah. So for me, sport climbing is something I do for training. 
And I would say mountaineering is more like I'm looking literally at my mountaineering gear that I won't be using because we have to cancel this trip to Columbia early. But it's all my ice axe, my crampons, my double-toed boots, you know, um, my parka. You know, those mostly what I usually am training for. So anything that's over 16,000 feet alpining, that's usually what you'll find me. Did you have any particular mentors in this? I mean, figuring out how to like what to do with an ice axe and how to put crampons on. I mean, it's not probably not a ton of people just doing that on their own or what was your experience? So I'm going to answer your first question for no one can see this. I'm shaking my head now. Uh, so I, I taught it's my, true. yeah, I can verify <laughs> shaking his head. No. So uh, I didn't, again, there, if there's no representation, you know, there's no really way to do that. So I actually, everything I know, I learned from YouTube and reading books. And then I just, I have this framework. So this, everyone knows about me, like in project management, like it's, you keep incrementally doing something, compounding interests. So I would just really go home, watch you to read books on alpining, mountaineering, crevasse, the different, like the French crevasse, the like different way of how to like handle yourself. Um, you know, the rest step, everything. And I would then go out and try it. And then I just kept doing it. And, and here's the cool, interesting thing about outdoor sports. Nature will keep doing what it does best, which is progressing and if you keep being so stubborn you're going to keep getting exhausted and so if you want to like run up a mountain versus like using the proper stepping mechanics to do that you're going to get exhausted and like probably clap out on the way down the same within the notion so no one taught me to do that um i didn't have mentors and and the interesting is thing is about that is i would say if there was anything close to mentors that became people i met on climbs around the world that would just give me little tips here and there. And I just write them down and collected them. And so the same way for surfing, no one taught me how to really, no, no one taught me how to surf. I just went out, jumped myself in the deep end of the pool, scared my grandmother, swam out to the shallow end, got back in, taught myself to swim. And then I got grabbed a board, paddled out. Oh, I ate a lot of shit. <laughs> and then, um, that shit, flourished into a garden of roses and I just kept nurturing that garden and just took off on more waves and I would just charge the bigger waves. Like I told my friend I was teaching here to surf. If I got into a six foot wave, okay, I was like, cool, I'm going to go to eight foot, go to 10 foot. And then I got to 15 and the same with climbing. It's like, all right, you can start off with doing these 10 foot thousand. I did 10,000 foot mountains. And then I was like, okay, as soon as you get to 13, 14, you're going to have to deal with snow. You're going to eat shit putting your crampons on. You need to learn how to actually like kick with your crampons properly. All right. How to use an ice axe, like make sure it's the right hip distance. And so over time, I just kept doing it and just taught myself. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about brands and sponsorships. We've, we've kind of touched on this a couple times uh, just for a second, this conversation, but talk a bit about your own experience with this as you are like, man, I'm, you know, putting together a pretty interesting project and going after some really cool objectives. And I've got kind of a vision for why I'm doing this stuff. And I take it you started reaching out to some brands. Talk a bit about this process for you. It's been a really difficult, long one. I'll just say that. Um, And this goes back to understanding the corporate world and how this goes. Because in the corporate space, everyone's always reaching out to you. And so... I think I got practice reaching out to brands when I had to re- send colleges my track and field tapes as well before I got a track and field scholarship. Like no track and fields, no schools were looking for me. I was writing to them and sending them edits of my, my like me running at my meets that people were recording. I would just edit together. And so the kind, it kind of came back similar when it came to brands and outdoor space. And I'll just say this. Into 2020, the summer of George Floyd, no brand gave me any help whatsoever. It wasn't until Black Diamond, Hoka, Sea to Summit really were like, we're going to give you gear. I did Kilimanjaro in Walmart boots and pants and a double hoodie and a beanie. And I have that photo to prove that as well. <laughs> I did Aconcagua in some rented boots, some Walmart pants, and a parka I got off of Amazon for 98 bucks and being physically responsible and understanding life and all of that. 
it's very expensive to afford gear in this space. I was working two jobs, being a project manager, you know, senior project manager, and also working to get like spare change to even pay for like gear was pretty hard. It wasn't until this summer when the Black Lives Matter movement came into impact that brands started to like be like, oh, we need to see more representation on our rosters because people are actually looking to these brands to be more relevant. And so for me, I already knew in my mind what brands I didn't want to be involved with and I did want to be involved with because, again, being in the corporate world for so long, I already knew if you don't know your core values, then I don't know if I can really, you know, articulate or be aligned with you. And the reason why I say that is this is because I know my four core values. If you go on the Between Worlds project website, those are my core values. I just tinker tailored around to be applicable for that. And so certain brands didn't really fit my core values. So after the Black Lives Matter movement happened, I reached out to a few brands and some brands reached out to me and I was like, "Mm, I don't really think you're going to really be open to what I'm trying to do here. Like you're going to use me as your checkbox athlete. And I literally would say to them, I'm not going to be your checkbox athlete. I'm not here to be like checkbox. Cool. We did it. We got you, Andrew. We can be, we're, we're woke. That isn't what this is about here. And I would say to them, I was making good enough strides here on my own. It may take me 30 years to get to the top, but I don't need to be bought out to do that. The issue now is with brands, I think, or not issue, that's a pretty harsh way of saying that, is the exploratory you know, journey we need to have with brands now is they're looking for athletes that are similar to those high caliber athletes on their roster that you're not going to really find because I would just say this, it's like finding a highly skilled mathematician from the inner cities of Detroit or Chicago being at MIT. You'll, you'll find them. They don't come as often. And people are like, why is that? Cause that curriculum isn't embedded into those school systems early on. So that level of investment isn't there. The same thing is applicable to your climbers people of color are not welcome or don't have accessibility to the outdoors community. So you're looking for someone that is similar to your high profile athletes in a minority space, which they are not going to come by as far as often. I can tell you this because all of us talk to each other on Instagram and there's about only 10 of us and we look around and we go, we're it. And it's, it's interesting to us because we're not, for me at least, I would say this, it's not about giving me a jacket to make me feel warm. I'm grateful for that, but it's about having the equity for people to understand. It's not just having a seat at the table. It's having an agenda point on the topic for us to talk about. It's about the next generation. It's about looking back and be like, okay, 2023, your portfolio is 10% diverse. In 2025, let's make it 25% diverse and so on. The discussion with brands has been one of very interesting to me because I think for brands, when they interact with me, at least they understand that I'm someone that's navigated that space for so long corporately that I understand like, okay, if you're going to sign me, then what's the formal contract? Where are my media rights for this? Like if you take my photo and you put it on your website how long are you going to pay? Are you going to pay me for that? Like, is it going in? Like, is it, do I have like, you know, my, my right, my image rights for that? Like, what does that look like? And some brands don't think like that because again, it's like corporate world, former D1 athlete. I know what this is like and just navigating that space. I mean, and you know, and thinking about your example of like, if we don't have many, many mathematicians coming out of, you know, the inner city or something. I I just keep thinking about like, Mm -hmm. we need pioneers. We need people setting these new paths and these new routes and just opening it up and being like, you could become a jazz musician. You could become a mountain climber. There's this weird place called Hawaii. You could maybe go there one day and surf. And I think like, that's again, I think really the there's a lot of stuff to be 
disappointed by and disgusted with in in our current society but this is the stuff that always keeps me pretty optimistic is that like we can keep carving out and new channels new pathways you know that stuff is super exciting to me actually the work you're doing and in a small way this little conversation or but like let's just keep expanding the world and and opening up the world for everybody on this planet that's to me really exciting work and stuff that it actually does make me more optimistic about the future. I'm happy because the way that I think of all those setbacks, I think of it as rocket fuel. Every time a brand told me no, I just added it to the rocket fuel. Every time a college said, hey, we're not going to give you a scholarship, I said, add it to the rocket fuel. Every time I didn't get a job because they're like, hey, you don't know this math, like this equation yet, add it to the rocket fuel. And so anyone listening to this, make your rocket fuel blast you off towards all the mountains and stars you want to see. And that's what I would do. Like people would be like, I remember someone like Andrew, you're never going to be able to be a big wave surfer. And then I head to Mexico last, what in October. And I take off on a 15 foot wave and one of the hardest and most biggest waves there is in like North America. It's a very, it's called Puerto Escadino Zigatella. And that's the shot everyone saw on Instagram. They're like, it looks like a professional shot. It's me in a 15 foot wave pushing down the line. If you would have told a 11-year-old like me back in the day that I would be doing that, I'd be like, no. If you would have told me that I would run up to the top of Kilimanjaro, I'd be like, no. So use all those moments in your life that people want to put hurdles in front of you as rocket fuel. Break down those barriers, break them up, and throw them into your fire, and let that be that rocket fuel that blasts you forward to see the happiness that you want to see. And just be like, be humble and like tell those stories of like how you got there. Like I tell people all the time, I'm always learning from people. If you see me on the beach and you have something to tell me or in the mountains, I'm going to listen to you about that. If you're talking about some outlandish, crazy thing. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you should drink vinegar before climbing at 20,000 feet. Like, I don't know about that, but that's cool. I'll explore it. You know, <laughs> or maybe you should like use egg wax on your board and be like, all right, that sounds cool, but I'm not going to try that on a big day. But I think it's your point, you know, there has to be, or there, we should strive for pushing for more representation because it's how we get to be a collective, better human race altogether. And for me, it's always been about that since that time in Taiwan. And, you know, we're now seven years, six years later into this. And um, for me, it's like, I, I don't, I, I how can I put this in words? The Between Worlds project is a project that is narrative me climbing these mountains. When it's all said and done, if I'm still talking as the head of that project, I've done it completely wrong. I envision I envision it this. I envision being a very old man walking on the beach of Hawaii, going to the shack to get something to eat, and someone says, Hey, I got a scholarship to go to like Juilliard or I got a scholarship to go to like UCLA or University of Michigan. And the Between Worlds Project is paying for my books and board. And I just smile and they go, what are you smiling at? And I just go, nothing. And I get my food and walk away. That is it. You know, having someone that's from India talking about like, I'm the first Indian woman to, you know, sail across the sea and it's funded by the Between Worlds Project or the first African to actually become like the first pipeline master. And they're like, hey, my board is sponsored by the Between Worlds. That, that is the story that we're telling here. So if I'm still... The highlight of that, I've done this completely wrong. You know what I mean? That is where it should be taken off. And that's the 15th mountain where someone else takes it and goes with it. Man, you just opened up the whole project for me. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I don't think I realized that that was the kind of end game you're talking about here. Yeah. That's a pretty damn good end game. Yeah, that's it. That's, just, that's, that's the whole point. People... I'll just let everyone know that here's this in any interview that I do. And I try to make this clear is that it's, there's going to be other people than me that go climb. And after, and I can put this in words, there's a lot other, for every one of those 14 mountains, there's actually four training mountains that get me up those. So collectively, I'm actually climbing like 44 mountains over the course of all the way to Everest. They're pretty interesting mountains, by the way. But 
along the way, like working with nonprofits, talking to people, learning about their struggles and stories, that's the whole premise of this. I'm just the guy carrying the torch forward for people to see it. It's, it, it, it's again, it's the vehicle. The stories are about everyone else that they may not have the strength to stand up, but I have the strength to carry their voice and messenger. They may not have the voice to do it, but I have, I mean, the eyes to see it, but I have the eyes to tell what they should be seeing around them. That is it. So that's the end game for me is that at the end of it all, some kid that is out there, a young adult can be like, I'm part of the Between Worlds project. Now I'm under the glass ceiling and I'm on the other side. And like, Here's the rope, start climbing. It's going to be better on this other side. But when you get up to this point with me, throw it back down for someone else and we'll be up here together. And by then the round table is a collective, a collective diverse group of individuals that says, all right, we're past the glass ceiling. Now what? Let's build a world that's inclusive and accepting to all of us. You've just spelled out a really beautiful vision for the future. Mm -hmm. Thanks. One that I'm real excited about. Let's now turn back to like now, now. And let's kind of talk about like what is on your agenda next here in terms so we're tracking in terms of where you are with the project and the next the next objective and the like yeah so the next one is every year is four to five mountains and it's tackling one of those 14 i've already done the highest volcano in north america i've already done kilimanjaro i've already done out concagua um, but i will be doing the training my training mountain for denali would be mount rainier mount hood going back down to pico de Azaba. And I'm so sorry for anyone that is from Mexico that hears this. I'm really horrible at pronouncing it. So please, I respect your culture. I'm just really bad. I'm learning Spanish as much as I can. So please bear with me on that. Or disculpe or pardon, I should say. That's my trajectory. The, the, end, the goal for this year is two goals, Jonathan. It's climb Denali, leave my grandmother's ashes at the top that passed away this spring from COVID. Uh, my great-grandmother, I'm going to put her ashes at the top because... She's from Detroit, and I said she should rest someplace higher than where she started. Second is to take off on a pretty, probably 20-foot wave in Waimea Bay or in Hawaii this fall um, or this surf season, so training for that. And then the same core values, speak up for racism, inequality, um, more representation, diversity, and outdoor sports, and ends with anyone else that's marginalized within those communities along the way. So the next mountain I have is right now is back down to climb the highest volcano in North America, but this time in the winter, it's snow. Rainier might be open by then, um, this April, May, but if not, it's Mount Hood. And then it's training as usual. So that's it. Denali is, I got to find funding. I'm going to hopefully, hopefully find $10,000 to get me to Denali this summer and give it a shot. Pretty good. So for people who want to start following along where are your preferred places for them to go connect with the project or connect with you it would be the project is the betweenwellsproject.com and you know that's been a great place to go and then on instagram andrew alexander king i say hey if you want to hear something you want to talk please send me a dm i'm open to hear about your feedback your stories and and so there those are my two places a lot of people do get at do connect with me on there. I do sometimes put out poems on on Twitter, which Andrew King, you can find that there. And also I ghostwrite poems for people, which is pretty interesting because people are figuring that out. So, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. You ghostwrite poems? It's actually, yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. It's actually pretty hilarious. It, it came out, it came out like during COVID because during COVID, I was going around like uh, the LA, like Santa Monica area, leaving poems around to make people like to give people like some hope when COVID, we had our first lockdown. So I would just go around and like leave poems on benches and stuff and, you know, help people um, get through it. And I wouldn't tell people, I wouldn't put my name on it. It was just like the Santa Monica poet. And then someone was taking photos of it and be like, does anyone know who the Santa Monica poet is? And then someone was like, Oh, that must be like, it looks like Andrew King's handwriting. (laughs) 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 But I still write poems. I just don't tag them now and around the internet. So it's pretty interesting. It's pretty hilarious. Wow. You're the first poetry ghostwriter I think I've ever, in fact, heard of, let alone 
met. So it's good. Yeah, I hope I hope this is on your LinkedIn page. You know, like uh, I don't. I did. I don't. And that's a crazy thing. It's oh man, that's crazy. But now I would if I had a LinkedIn, I would do it. And it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I think if you want to get a hold of me, it's definitely those two mediums. And I reactivated that Twitter my Twitter account, so I'm usually open and. But yeah, I'm happy to hear from anyone. Yeah, along this way, along this journey, I want to I want to learn as much as I can from both sides. You know, just from all the good and the bad, before I can understand how to navigate and build a world that's fair and holistic along the way. So, Andrew, this has been a pleasure. <laughs> uh, re- really fun. Yeah, and I'm excited to hear more about the the big vision. I mean, it's like you got the cool thing going on on the micro level, but there's a big, cool macro level vision here too. And that's really exciting. I wouldn't bet against you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I'm not prepared to bet against you on, on, on seeing this stuff out, you know, to, for your ability to make this all happen. And so, um, I hope we can do this again and yeah. kind of just check in from time to time along the way, whether it's after Denali or before Denali or, you know, as, as you keep expanding out, uh, it would be really cool to get updates from you. And I hope people in our audience will go check out, you know, Between Worlds Project, perhaps figure out how they can get involved or just be inspired by what you're doing for one. This is real good stuff. We're we're going to be cheering for you along the way. Hey, I I'm happy. I'm just honored to be here and thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak holistically and articulate my journey and passion. I would just say for anyone that is in a place that they think is dark, just keep using your, your rocket fuel to get to a higher place and know that you're not alone and there's people out there that can relate to your story. And so, I believe in you and thank you for believing in me as well. Andrew, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs> Patriots do not cheat, by the way. They win. <laughs> well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast. Leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And of course, be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Andrew for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte and Gunnison, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again tomorrow over on our Off the Couch podcast. See you there.